Welcome to Modern Family Matters, a podcast hosted by Steve Altitian, our Director of Client Partnerships here at Landerholm Family Law. We are devoted to exploring topics within the realm of family law that matter most to you. Our discussions will cover a wide range of both legal and personal issues that encompass family law matters. We strongly believe that life events such as marriages, divorces, remarriages, births, adoptions, children growing up, growing older, illnesses, and deaths do not dissolve a family. Rather, they provide the opportunity to reconfigure and strengthen family dynamics in healthy and positive ways. With expertise from qualified attorneys and professional guests, we hope that our podcast will help provide answers, clarity, and guidance towards a better tomorrow for you and your family. Without further ado, your host, Steve Altitian. Hello and welcome to Modern Family Matters, a podcast series sponsored by Landerholm Family Law aimed at addressing the myriad of real-life issues, legal, personal, and financial, that touch and affect real-life families. My name is Steve Altitian. I'm the Director of Client Partnerships here at Landerholm Family Law, and I'll be your host for these podcasts. Before we start in on today's topic, I want to invite anyone listening into this podcast to visit our website, www.landerholmlaw.com, where we have a wide range of articles and resources covering timely issues about situations and questions that are important to you as you move forward through your own unique life's journey. And since in these days the concept of timely issues is an even more fluid concept than usual, I would also like to encourage you to send us any suggestions you may have for topics that are important to you. Again, we don't envision this podcast as a series of generic primers, but as deeper looks into specific situations that really happen in the dynamics of real modern families. So our topic today is going to be about an important but not very well known and even less well understood issue that arises in more and more divorces around the country. We're talking about qualified domestic relation orders, more often referred to by its four-wheeler sounding acronym, the Quadro. But before we start to talk on a Quadro and what it is and what it does, let Let's, you know, take a look at the landscape a little bit to show why the topic is so important. Over 90 million workers in the United States are covered by over 800,000 employer-provided retirement plans, totaling billions of dollars. And for many people, these retirement savings represent one of their most significant assets. Well, you know, at the same time, the divorce rate in America is nearly 50% of the marriage rate, which means that huge amounts of retirement plans are being dealt with in divorce cases. And while the division of marital property, along with custody, visitation, and support, is generally covered by state domestic relations laws, when it comes to splitting up a retirement interest, a whole other set of federal laws comes into play and needs to be strictly complied with. That said... My guest today is Will Jones, a partner here at Landerholm Family Law and our resident quadro guru. He's going to be here to help try to make this complex, difficult, but important topic a little better, well, you know, understood. So, Will, let's talk today about quadros in general by using 
an assumption. Let's assume that I am a client. I'm coming in to see you. I have a spouse with maybe a pension or a 401k, and you see that. So what would you say? What would the first thing you say to me when you you see that my my spouse has a pension? I think the first thing we want to look at is, is it something we're going to divide or we're going to try to offset in some other way? So if you have a 401k that's worth $100,000, but you have a house that's, say, you have 200000 in equity, do we really want to try to touch your retirement? Do we want to try to divide that? Or is it divisible at all? Did you have that you know, prior to the marriage and you maybe haven't commingled it? So the first question is, is it divisible and is it wise to make that divisible? So the first thing we want to do whenever we see either a pension, which you may have to value, or say a 401k versus, say, a Roth IRA, is we want to get a common denominator for the entirety of your property division. So 401k is funded with pre-tax dollars, so we need to put in some tax rate, which we're going to kind of make up and take a reasonable guess at, so we can basically compare post-tax dollars to post-tax dollars. Once we've looked at that, let's you know, kind of assume that we need to divide that 401k, now we're going to determine at what level we're going to divide that or what portion of that might be divisible. So what we're going to look at in that situation is the marital coverture fraction. So we're basically trying to pull out the parts of your retirement that are marital, right? So if you've been contributing to a 401k regularly for 20 years, but you've only been married for 10, well, you got 10 years of that 20-year period that maybe we don't divide. So we need to get that out of there. And we do that with a marital coverture fraction, where we look at the total time that you've been adding to that pension or 401k. Then we look at the time you've added to while you're in the marriage. Then we take roughly half of that. We may offset with some other property or something like that. But the first issue is let's look at common dollars, post-tax dollars, and then let's look at what portion is divisible through a marital coverture fraction. So that sounds good. Let's say then we decide that you decide that that there is an amount of the 401k or the pension plan that should be split. Uh, Because this is a quadro, what's the difference between just putting that in an order and having the, the judge split it? Or, or does it have to be split in a different way than, let's say, a house? So you end up in a, the, let's call it the physical division of the dollars. You end up in kind of a different land. Because when you look at something like a 401k, the term 401k comes directly from the tax code, right? So the IRS tax code is controlling that. We're in state court on the dissolution side of things. So just because you have a dissolution judgment in state court, you're asking the state court and the dissolution judge to divide something that's controlled federally. So we need a separate order that complies basically with federal law in order to divide that through the plan administrator. So the way we do that is we enter a dissolution judgment that says, hey, we're going to split this 401k 50-50, right? Now it's clear between the parties what's going to happen, but now we have to clarify that for the plan administrator, right, for whoever holds the plan. Right. So the plan administrator actually gets to make the decision as well? Not necessarily the, desi- the decision. It's really the court that makes the decision and the paperwork that goes to the plan administrator. But the plan administrator has to approve of how it's divided, right? So the plan administrator will have to follow, say, 50-50. We're going to divide this in half. But you also have to comply with things like ERISA, you know, tax implications. How does this actually happen? 
So your quadro, Qualified Domestic Relations Order, is what lays all that out and makes all of the federal issues overall and the actual division happen. And then sounds like it's really more of an administrative decision on the end of the of the administrator. It has to follow their particular rules as to how it's done, but the decision of it getting done or being done is still with the judge. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. So. Hey, I get hundred. I get an A. <laughs> <laughs> so then. Let's say we're going, to, we're, we're going to do a quadro, we decide, what do you, do I have to go out and get some information from you? What do you tell me to do? Do you get the information? What the heck do we need to get? So a lot of the information is going to come from the disillusion case itself, right? Because things like account statements, who holds the plan, who are the people listed on the plan, all that stuff should have come about through discovery in the dissolution case. So a lot of times we already have the information that we need if we handled your dissolution. If not, we need most recent account statements, we need account holders, we need alternative beneficiaries, social security numbers, things like that, depending on how we're going to divide that. Sometimes we may just want to pull all the cash out of that account, obviously subject to taxes and penalties if that happens. Other times we actually want to divide it and actually create a separate account or we want to roll that over into some other qualifying plan so we can avoid tax consequences. But generally we need you know, account statements and information for the parties. So let's say we've got that now, we have the information, we're ready to do it. Uh, what's the timing on this thing? So you have a general judgment of disillusion. Let's assume that that got signed. It says we're going to split this in half, right? Then we're going to start drafting a quadro, right? So your qualified domestic relations order that actually makes the physical division of this account. So that gets drafted, sent back and forth between counsel or parties for approval. Once everybody has approved that, then that draft order goes over to the plan administrator for pre-approval, just like you would kind of do with a home mortgage, right? Take a look at this. Tell us that it's okay. If it's okay or if it needs changes, let us know. Comes back to the attorneys or the parties, right? If everything's approved, then it gets sent to the court, right? Court looks at it, make sure it's all in order. A judge signs it. It comes back to the parties or attorneys. Everybody's all executed all, then it goes out to the plan itself, then the administrator can make the full division of that account. Then you're done. Sounds again like this kind of is like a closing. If we were going to split the house and or we were going to sell the house, judge orders it, but there still is a procedure that actually finalizes kind of like a closing of the house sale. Yeah, very similar. The larger hurdle that we're trying to overcome here with a quadro from a functional level is you have a judge who's presiding over a disillusion case where you have, say, a husband and wife, right? So clearly the judge can direct what's going to happen between husband and wife. But now we're directing a third person, third entity that's not part of the case. And that's why the supplemental order that deals with federal law becomes important because whoever holds the 401k funds, they weren't there. They're not part of the disillusion case. So we're directing them outside and after the disillusion is done to do something supplemental. But yeah, it does represent the closely resemble, I should say, the closing of a house where, you know, you may have pre-approval for a mortgage, but that's not final approval. You have preliminary statements, but they're not final. Nothing's final until you get to closing. And that's when the quadro actually hits the plan administrator for final division. Got it. Is there, how long does that normally take? Or is there not a normal in that, in that question? <laughs> the, unfortunately, the process is kind of riddled with delays, right? And we do our best to minimize them. But when you send a 
you know, a quadra for plan approval, how long does the administrator take to get that back to you, right? Comes back to you, maybe, let's say it gets approved, now it goes to the court. How long before a judge gets to that to sign it? And it comes back to us and you send it to the plan administrator, how long before they make that actual division? So a lot of that is outside of our control. We minimize as much as we can. We get one back, we review it, bam, it's off to the next phase. But because you're involving so many parties and that document is moving so many different places, it does take some time. A month and a half wouldn't be uncommon, three months wouldn't be uncommon. So somewhere in there is usually safe. And that's following the divorce decree. Yeah. Then, does and I take it that by doing that, that, that protects, the let's say, my half of it. Because what happens if, if my spouse quits, gets fired, somehow does something to mess up his or her portion of that 401k or that pension plan? Does that affect me? Could. So you have all kinds of different plans. So you have, say, a 401k, which is a cash value account, right? It's just a retirement account. It's subject to gains and losses. But when you look at a 401k statement subject to taxes and penalties, that's what it's worth. That's a dollar figure. That's what it is. When you start talking about a pension, which pays monthly payments after someone qualifies for retirement, that's a whole different animal and beast. So if you take something simple, which isn't really simple, but the numbers are simple, like a military pension, right? Military pension doesn't vest until 20 years of active duty. So if somebody retires or gets discharged from the military year 19, it never vested. There is nothing there to be had. No payments will be made because it never came into being. So if you have a military spouse who's at year 19, you use a co-op instead of a quadro in the military jargon, but you divide it at year 19, say wife got half of that, right? Husband got half of that, and then he retires the next day, it's a worthless asset entirely. It never vested, so everybody has risk in there. But when you're talking about a 401k, well, it's a cash value account. It exists right now. It's already vested. If... Let's say it's a pension account that pays until the employee dies and the employee retires, moving along, three years later, the employee dies. Is your half of that pension stop at that point? Not generally. And it really depends a lot on the plan. So a lot of plans will basically split the account and create a new pension account. Right, So husband has a pension, wife doesn't, we divide it. They may just go ahead and create wife's own pension account with the same, generally the same terms as husband's. So if husband could retire at 65, well now wife can under her portion of that plan. There's some other plans that do it kind of the opposite way and say, okay, we're going to create an account for wife, but all of our time deadlines are going to be computed on husband's service, husband's retirement age, husband's ability to retire, which makes some sense for them because say you have a wife that's 15 years older, right? You divide that account. Well, now the pension has to pay her because she's already 65. Well, husband's only 50. So you can see where you have kind of two different systems in how that might work. It sounds like this is a valuation game as well as just a follow the the I's and E's and dots game because you're required to not only try to put a value on that, that pension plan, you also have a risk value on that pension plan and you have other assets. 
And it, I, it's, it, I imagine that you're putting all of those together in terms of finally talking with the client about, well, should you take the pension plan, half of the pension plan, or is there other property that you should take maybe a little less value of, but with no risk? Very true. So when you're looking at all of these things and kind of where we started this whole thing is we need a common denominator. What is this actually worth in relation to something else, right? So a dollar in your checking account is worth far different than a dollar in a 401k. So to get those to the same number, if we were going to take money out of the 401k, we got a 10% early withdrawal penalty and then taxes on whatever tax rate you're in, let's call it 25%, which is probably a little low, but that gets us there. So really your dollar in your 401k to be turned to cash is worth what, 65 cents, something like that. So now we're looking at a common denominator. But when you start talking with clients and you start dealing with what's going on, now we add in all manner of layer of complexity. Because let's say I have somebody who comes in and they have a million dollar house and they only owe 150 on it, right? I have a wife who maybe makes $50,000 a year. Well, she can probably refinance that $150,000. She's going to have to offset a whole lot of equity, about $850,000, which we may do with retirement that husband may want to keep. But wife would never be able to buy a million dollar house again. And she may go, I want the kids to stay here. This is very important to me. Well, now she bought by offsetting with retirement a million dollar house by letting husband keep more retirement and she only had to pay out of pocket 150,000. So you get into a very complex moving division depending on what people want to do, right? Does wife want retirement or does she want a house that she can suddenly afford and can never get a house like that before? Same thing happens with your retirement accounts. You got a Roth IRA that's post-tax dollars, right? So it's worth about what you see. You have a regular IRA that's pre-tax dollars. 401k is pre-tax. And then you end up in this pension land, and valuing pensions is a field in and of itself. So if you have a pension that pays out $1,000 a month, say when somebody turns 65, what's that $1,000 a month equal to once it's all paid out, right? So how long is this person going to live? Right? What are cost of living adjustments? What's going to happen with the tax code? So if you got $1,000 a month and that guy lives to 79, well, that's 12 months times 14 years, right? Whatever that comes out to, 160-something, right? That's the true value overall, and there's obviously a lot more math that goes into that, but you're taking some risk there because what if he dies before he even gets it? That's right. What if he dies at 70? So all those things are moving, and that's where you have to get to a common denominator to kind of start making some decisions. It sounds to me like anyone who is in the process or considering a divorce, any couple or any of the parties, if there is a pension, a retirement account, 401k or a SEP or any sort of retirement account, it really is pretty much impossible for them to try to do that divorce themselves because that's that particular quadro requires a level of skill that really most people just don't have. Yeah, quadros and you know federal tax law in general is unendingly complex. The more scary situation that I see is I have people who come in for consultations all the time or who have done a divorce on their own and say, yeah, my husband had some retirement, but it's his. It's got his name on it. And I can't touch it. He earned it. 
Well, that's not true, right? It was earned during the marriage, but now you have a property division, which is what we're talking about here, which is finalized, and that is presumptively non-modifiable in Oregon, but they never talked to anybody. They didn't know that that was happening. They didn't know that that could happen. Anything from we didn't know to whoa, we drastically screwed this up, that happens. So it's important to at least talk to somebody to know what you're getting into. And it seems like it's becoming more and more so because the the just sheer numbers of people who have some sort of retirement account is dramatically higher than it was, say, 15 years ago. Yeah. And you're dealing with, you know, all kinds of other concerns. You know, you have a wage earning spouse and non-wage earning spouse. Well, one person is going to max out Social Security while the other one may not. So you end up in this, what are we going to do in retirement? Of course, there's provisions where one spouse can get a payment equal to one half of the wage earning spouse's Social Security. But you got to look really closely as you do all this stuff. You know, what are we looking at monthly budget? How are we going to maximize property division to make sure that that works out? Now we look at retirement a little bit. Well, say my client has half Social Security of what the other party has. Maybe I want more retirement. Or maybe I want, you know, I want to offset some cash value item we have now for more retirement because I know my client isn't going to be able to make it on 1200 bucks a month in Social Security. So we need to actually maximize more retirement. Tons of decisions to be made, and they all bounce off one another. Well, thank you. This is really informative. And I'm just going to kind of stop or quit with one last question. And that would be, and I think you've sort of said it today, what would your one piece of advice be to a person who is contemplating a divorce and either of the, of the parties have a retirement account? You just got to talk to somebody. There you go. That makes sense. And thank you, Will. This is really informative, really difficult stuff. And clearly this requires an attorney who knows what the heck they're doing. You're listening to Modern Family Matters, a legal podcast focusing on providing real answers and direction for individuals and families as they navigate the growth, changes, and challenges of creating their new family dynamics. Modern Family Matters is sponsored by Landerholm Family Law, serving Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, and devoted to providing clients with compassionate and fierce legal advocacy with a firm belief in the importance of upholding the family unit amidst complex transitions. If you are in need of legal counsel or have additional questions about a family law matter important to you, you can visit our Landerholm Family Law website at www. Dot landerholmlaw.com or call us at 503-227-0200 to schedule a case evaluation with one of our seasoned attorneys. Modern Family Matters, advocating for your better tomorrow and offering solutions on legal matters important to the modern family.